I love hearing every single time we sing the doxology in this building. It's amazing. So before I begin, I, I saw a, uh, a thing on Facebook. Um, it basically explains what life is like uh, in a church that does expository preaching on holidays. So, happy Father's Day. Anyway, let's turn into our text today. <laughs> but before we begin, begin, let's pray. Heavenly Father, in a time of rampant fatherlessness, we recognize that you are our perfect father. And we know that all of the fathers in this building today must look to you as the perfect father, as the example of how we are supposed to love and lead our wives, our children, and even the people who are spiritually under our care, that we would love and serve them the way you do us. So Lord, as we go today, let us recognize the need for our perfect Father, as we also recognize the need for earthly fathers. Lord, be with me today as I bring the message. Pray that uh, you would anoint my mouth and ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you will turn with me to uh, Acts chapter 9, and we'll be looking at verses 32 through 43. And while you're turning there, I'd like to give a brief summary of the story so far. So Jesus tells the apostles that they will be, wit- be his witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And Pentecost happens, tongues of fire, the Holy Spirit falls. Peter preaches, explains what has happened. The whole place is cut to the heart, and 3,000 people come to Christ. And that number grew daily after that. And so interestingly enough, this is the first of a number of transition periods within the church in the book of Acts. The next one Luke records is in chapter 4, after the apostles are arrested and charged by the Jewish leaders not to preach the gospel. The one after that is in chapter 6, when the deacons were chosen. It says that the church grew and multiplied. And then persecution happens. God ordains the scattering of his church who had become all too comfortable with the idea of staying in Jerusalem. And at this time, non-Jews began to hear the gospel, and the people in all Judea and Samaria are converted. And then we have the miraculous conversion of Paul, which turns the tables and, 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 and Paul also turns the tables on the people who once had his back. And finally, we come to the next transition that Luke records, and the first one post-persecution, in verse 31. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. So now to our text today, starting in verse 32. Now as Peter went here and there among them all, he came down also to the saints who lived at Lydda. 
There he found a man named Aeneas, bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And immediately he rose. And all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. Now there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. She was full of good works and acts of charity. In those days she became ill and died, and when they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. Since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to him, urging him, Please, come to us without delay. So Peter rose and went with them, and when he arrived, they took him to the upper room. All the widows stood beside him, weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas made while she was with them. But Peter put them all outside and knelt down and prayed. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes, and when she saw Peter, she sat up. And he gave her his hand and raised her up. Then calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive. And it became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. And he stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon, a tanner. Now this and the next section of the book act as a springboard for pretty much the rest of the book of Acts. This is the transition period between all Judea and Samaria and the ends of the earth. Peter, who we last saw in chapter 8, affirming the spread of the gospel to the Samaritans and then going down to Jerusalem, is now freely coming and going throughout the land, visiting the church. I like how the ESV renders the text going here and there. I don't know about you, but I picture Peter sort of moseying around or taking his time going to the, to the different areas. And what's interesting is it's a stark contrast to what came before. But Paul tells us in Galatians that there, were, there was a three-year period between his conversion and his meeting with Peter. So if I've got his timeline Right, three years have passed between the end of the persecution and the events of our passage this morning. Whether or not the church had three years of peace or hunkered down while they waited to see what happened to their persecutor, we don't know. But there is an obvious shift, almost like a sigh of relief. So we see here in our text this morning a recurring theme of restoration. And if I were to give a title to my sermon, it would be The Gospel Brings Restoration. So for those of you taking notes, my sermon has the standard three points. Point number one, the gospel restores corporately. Number two, the gospel restores the sick. And finally, the gospel raises the dead. So to our first point. This point of corporate restoration kind of recurs throughout the passage, so I'll keep referring back to it. But our first glimpse of corporate restoration happens to the church in verse 31. Imagine living under constant threat of being jailed or maimed or killed, and through a providential act of God, the storm ends and you finally get to breathe a sigh of relief. Interestingly, Luke records that the church multiplied in this time of peace. 
We saw the gospel advancing in Judea and Samaria during the persecution, but Luke doesn't say multiply. Now today, it it appears as though we're experiencing the reverse action. Here in America, we live in a perpetual state of peace. By that meaning, by and large, we can go along unbothered. We don't have to worry about whether or not men with guns and badges are going to come through our doors and arrest us or drag us out of our homes like what happens so frequently in China and Africa. But yet the church is thriving in those places. I have a lot of fellow students who are in China where it's illegal to attend an American seminary and people are coming to Christ daily in secret churches. Isn't it interesting that in America, one of the world's richest countries, the church by and large is declining in number? You would think that a place so peaceful would have massive growth in church attendance. But the amazing truth we must see is that the body of Christ in America and zooming in on our tiny little town has the hope of restoration. We can be restored. God has shown us through the entirety of Acts up to this point a restoration of God's chosen people, which he promised to do, and that promise will not return void. As bleak as the future may seem for the church here, we serve a promise-keeping God, and in that we can rejoice. So more of point one will be explained later, but I'd like to move to the second point. The gospel restores the sick. We come to the part of the story where Peter enters Lydda. It says, Now Peter went here and there among them all, and he came down also to the saints who lived at Lydda. There he found a man named Aeneas, bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And immediately he rose. Now Lydda is a coastal town northeast of Jerusalem that was previously visited by Philip. Peter now makes his way in Philip's footsteps and no doubt saw the fruit of his labor. What is striking about this, pas- this part of the passage is that it's very straightforward. Peter comes to Lydda, sees Aeneas, Aeneas gets healed, and the region sees the healed Aeneas and turns to Christ. That's it. There's not much extraneous detail. But it's only when you think about the implications of this healing that the gravity of it comes into focus. We know from the Gospels that to be a paralytic in the first century meant you were relegated to the forgotten part of society. You were basically a living, breathing street ornament that had to rely on the benevolence of other people in order to survive. You were a second-class citizen. Aeneas would have had hygiene issues, sores from laying on his mattress all day and night for eight years, would have dealt with the derision of passers-by, and I'm sure longed for the day when his suffering would end, and with no end in sight, death would have been a comfort to him because at the very least, he wouldn't have to deal with being a paralytic. But then... As Aeneas is baking in the sun, he catches the gaze of Peter, who tells him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. 
What a shock that would have been to be lying on your back for eight years, and then all of a sudden you regain feeling and strength in your legs and can finally stand up for the first time in eight years. Luke says, immediately he rose. The healing was instantaneous. Another interesting thing to note is that Peter declared that the healer was not himself, but rather Jesus. It is interesting that in Peter, who had healed people before, recognized that he had zero power in himself to heal. All he was was a a conduit for the Lord. And that's something we would do well to keep in mind today. Jesus Christ is the healer, not a person. While there is much hope for chronically ill or disabled or paralyzed people to be found in this passage, there is a much broader truth to convey here. Aeneas is a physical example of the spiritual healing that the gospel brings. Our sinful condition in many ways leaves us with a chronic spiritual cancer that impairs every facet of our lives. Our idolatry and our sin that springs from it leads us to a whole host of spiritual sickness. Whether it's anger that leads to violence or lust that leads to addiction or covetousness that leads to acquiring money, things, and status by any means necessary, or even laziness that leads to spiritual apathy. Our sin in many ways places us right down on the mat beside Aeneas. Not only do we have our own selves to contend with, Satan is at every turn holding up shiny things in front of us. And when we take the bait, he goes from the tempter to the accuser. You're never going to recover from this. You'll always and forever be marked by your sin, and you might as well stop trying to get better. But the amazing part about Satan's accusation, he's 100% correct. Under our own power, we are utterly helpless to find any spiritual restoration. And it's only when we recognize that we have just as much chance of overcoming our sin as Aeneas did picking himself up off the ground that we can truly be restored. It's not only through the gospel of Christ that we can be he- it is only through the gospel of Christ that we can be healed of our sin and its effects, and I promise you Amidst all the accusations and the doubts, turning to Jesus and trusting his word will restore you just like it did Aeneas. I don't care what it is. There is no sin too great that cannot be answered with Jesus Christ heals you. And the second part of Peter's statement is just as important as the first. Make your bed. What is interesting to note is that in this healing, Peter emulates Jesus perfectly. We have numerous examples of Jesus telling a paralytic in the Gospels, take up your bed and walk, or take your mat and go home. And the point is that once we take up our mat, once we've been restored by the Gospel, our next move should not be to lay back down on the mat. Now, inevitably, when we do, and the cycle repeats itself, our posture needs to be one of repentance and letting the gospel restore us again. Proclaiming Jesus Christ heals you. 
Now after Aeneas and healed, it says, all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they returned to the Lord. Here, we have a corporate response to the gospel. These people knew Aeneas and likely stepped over him or walked past him. They knew he had been bedridden for quite some time and probably pitied him. And now, God used this former beggar's healing to bring restoration to the whole town. And not only that, but the surrounding area as well. They all turned to Jesus. And this corporate renewal obviously would have, been, would have had a positive effect on the daily lives of the residents. They would have abounded in love, in mercy, in compassion. And because this area was near the coast, it would have had affected the commercial sector. This demonstrates the ripple effect of the gospel. It not only has an impact on you, but affects everyone and, any, everyone and everything around you. So the question is, how's your marriage? Is it lying dormant on a mat? Is sin choking it out? How's your relationship with your children? If your marriage is in shambles, the whole house will be too. Listen to Peter's voice. Jesus Christ heals you. Let it pierce to the depths of your relationship with your spouse and turn to the one who will restore it. And your whole life and the lives of your children will be changed. Or how about your job? Certainly, if, if your entire mood changed one day as a result of being restored by the gospel, wouldn't it affect your workplace? Wouldn't your coworkers or your boss notice this change? Okay, what's your secret? Why do you have so much hope and joy all of a sudden? And I could go on and on with examples. But the central point is this. Like Aeneas, the gospel will restore and renew you. And not only that, it will have a profound effect on your environment. So we now move to the second miracle in our passage, the raising of Tabitha. Luke is much more thorough in his description of this event. It says, Now there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. She was full of good works and acts of charity. In those days she became ill and died, and when they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. Since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to him, urging him, Please come to us without delay. So Peter rose and went with them, and when he arrived, they took him to the upper room, and all the widows stood beside him, weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas made while she was with them. And so we see from Luke's account a couple things about Tabitha. First, that Tabitha resided in Joppa, which is a few miles west of Lydda, right on the coast of the Mediterranean. She was widely known for her works and charity, particularly in making clothes for the widows in her community, so much so that everyone she helped was present at her funeral. And her death was untimely, and it had a profound effect on the community. We also see the new, that the news of Peter's miracle in Lydda had made it over to Joppa because the disciples there sent an envoy after him. And Peter was unbothered by their request. 
We're not told how much time had passed between the healing of Aeneas and Peter's trek to Joppa, but we can assume it was not long. What we see when Peter arrives at Joppa is an absolute tragedy. People are weeping and mourning at the loss of their friend who helped them in their time of need. Thoughts must have been racing through their minds. Who's going to help me now? Why did God take such a good and helpful person? Without Tabitha, I'll be alone again. We don't exactly know the extent to which Tabitha helped the needy, but what we do see is that her loss was deeply felt. Certainly, in Joppa, people died every day, even Christians, but it's Tabitha that has the big funeral. We see it today, though, don't we? Whenever a staple of the community dies, the line at the viewing is out the door and down the street. Why? They were marked by the impact they had on others. Each one of the widows crying at Tabitha's funeral was someone who was touched by her service to them. As a side note, we could learn a thing or two from Tabitha's example, but that's not the point of the text. Moving along, we see Peter, no doubt moved by the display of the people's devotion to Tabitha, sends the people out of the room. Now why is that? That always puzzled me. What was the purpose of sending the people out? Why not just raise her from the dead then and there and let her go back to her life of service? Maybe it's because of the wave of people that would come crashing down upon Tabitha upon her restoration. Maybe Peter didn't want the people to associate him with the miracle. But I think the best explanation is that Peter is raising Tabitha from the dead in the exact same way Jesus did. In fact, what is striking about this miracle is there is almost a direct parallel to the raising of Jairus' daughter that Jesus did in Mark chapter 5. I'm not going to ask you to turn now to just summarize for you. Peter and the brothers James and John went with Jesus to the place they kept the girl. When they arrived, people were wailing and making a racket. Jesus sends them all out except the girl's parents and the three disciples. Jesus tells the girl, Talitha, kumi, which in Aramaic means little girl, arise. And this is exactly what we see Peter do with a couple differences. It says, but Peter put them all outside and knelt down and prayed. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes, and when she saw Peter, she sat up. And he gave her his hand and raised her up. Then calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive. And so Peter had no disciples like Jesus did to take along with him. Tabitha was a grown woman, so she didn't have parents to accompany her. But what, and he doesn't take her hand like Jesus does, but instead kneels down to pray. And after he finishes praying, turns to Tabitha which was her Aramaic name, and declared Tabitha, Kumi. And immediately she opened her eyes and presents, he presents her to the crowd, alive and well. Peter followed in his Lord's footsteps in raising Tabitha, which further explains 
the fact that Jesus is the one who does the resurrecting. Jesus is the one who raises from the dead. We ought to look to no one but Christ to heal and restore us. This brings us to the point I want to focus on. The gospel not only makes sick people well, but raises people to life from the dead. Tabitha is an example of God's power to raise dead sinners to life. But even more than that, God can raise dead faith to life. Is this you today? Are you in a place of doubt and despair, struggling if whether you believe God is even real? Is your once strong faith now just a smoldering wick on the brink of extinction? Are you holding out hope that if you just keep attending church, that you can rekindle your passion for Jesus again? Listen to the voice of Christ who is declaring to you today, Arise! Is your marriage dead? Do you have no love for the man or woman that you once loved and only have a hope and a prayer? Jesus says, arise. Make today the day the gospel restores you, restores your marriage, and restores your life. Do not walk out of here carrying the corpse of your faith. This is the essence of the gospel. Restoration and renewal. This is what Jesus accomplished on the cross. Jesus didn't die so that you would just get a clean slate. Sure, that's part of it, but the reason Jesus endured the wrath of God was to take the judgment you deserve so that you can be in right fellowship with your Creator, worshiping Him forever. So that you can serve Him unhindered by the burden of sin and carry out the mission He commanded you to. But we know that Jesus didn't just die, did he? He was raised from the dead as the first fruits of the resurrection. So that in this life we can have confidence that we can be restored and renewed too. And that we can look in hopeful anticipation to a future where we will be finally and fully restored forever. That is our hope. And what we see today in these miracles is the outworking of that restoration. So here in this part of our passage, we see another corporate restoration. It says, And it became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. No doubt, news of Tabitha's raising from the dead reached a lot of people. What is amazing is that because of these two miracles, the entire region turned to Christ. So this brings me to my final point. And I know that I said there was three, so consider this a bonus point. The gospel does not return empty. I know in this day and age, with everything that is happening around us, it's getting much easier and much more tempting to adopt a bleak attitude about the state of things. Even within the church, there has been for a number of years a general pessimism about the future, but what we have seen today in Acts and what we have seen so far is that the gospel does not return empty. Remember what Jesus said to his disciples in the very first chapter you will receive power. We have with us the words of eternal life, 
And not only is there power in the gospel, but we have with us the very same recreating and restoring spirit. So when we preach and proclaim the death and resurrection of Jesus, we can have confidence that dead sinners will come to life and sick sinners will be restored. The apostles rested on that promise. And even though they didn't live long enough to see the full bloom of the seeds they planted, Peter was martyred, crucified upside down, and every other apostle except John met the same fate. They were all killed for the cause of Christ. But we know through, from history that within 200 years, the head of the very same empire that kept that whole region under its oppressive thumb would turn to Christ. And this is the promise that we can rest on today. We certainly won't live long enough to see the fruits of our labors, but what we do know is that the Bible points forward to a time when the entire earth will be covered with the gospel. Jesus declares in Matthew 13, 31-33 that the kingdom of God starts small but grows mighty and permeates the whole earth. We're not there yet, so there's still work to do. So as long as there is breath in your lungs, let the gospel renew you continually. Preach the gospel, especially to yourself, so that the dead sinners around you can be raised to life. And keep in mind the hope that because of your work, the gospel will reach, will reach people in places you never thought possible, and the effect of which will extend for many years after you. This is the promise of God and our hope. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are a promise-keeping God. You sent your Son, Jesus, to ransom your people, to call them out, to raise them to life, to walk with you as their loving Creator. Show us today our need for the restoration of the gospel in our lives and in our community. Allow us to see the deficiencies that keep us paralyzed spiritually. Bring us, bring us to our minds to light those deficiencies. And Holy Spirit, I pray that you would mortify those things. Cut those out and raise us to life. Let us be a people with a zeal for a gospel that restores and renews and raises the dead. And Lord, let us always remember that you are the one who gets the glory. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.